an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. They asked me to uh, deliver a lecture on Edith Stein. What shall we do now? Everybody knows that Edith Stein, or rather Sister Benedict of the Cross, that was her name in the Carmel, is a, a great saint. Uh, we will try to see today what is her place in the history of philosophy. Is she a great philosopher? Yes. Why? Uh, what uh, is the impact that her thought has had on the development of phenomenology, of modern philosophy, and also on the dialogue between modern philosophy and classical philosophy? Um, in order to do this, to do this we must uh, uh, start a little bit before at its time. Uh, every story has a prehistory. And the prehistory of Edith Stein is Edmund Husserl. So we, we will begin with a few words on uh, Edmund Husserl and on phenomenology. Uh, phenomenology was an attempt to go back to things themselves. Um, and uh, to go back to things themselves is something that can be understood in many different ways and all the discussion on phenomenology is dependent upon the way in which you understand this starting point of Husserl. Husserl, when he says that he, want, that he wants to go back to things themselves, does not want to set aside the whole development of modern philosophy. And he does not want to go back directly to classical philosophy. In classical philosophy, uh, the research begins with the things, the knowledge of the things. In modern philosophy, we have a different starting point. Uh, in the beginning, in modern philosophy, you have a universal doubt on being. Uh, knowledge must be built upon absolute certainties uh, that resist to the trial of the universal doubt. We will neither ask nor answer on this occasion the question whether the starting point is justified or what are the limits within this, it is justified. Uh, it will enough to us today uh, to uh, state the fact that the phenomenological movement of Husserl towards things themselves does not set aside the Cartesian beginning of uh, uh, modern philosophy. Husserl is not a Thomist or a neo-Thomist or a realist in the sense of uh, uh, of uh, the, uh, the classical philosophy. <coughs> we begin with the cogito ergo sum. This is the absolute beginning of modern philosophy, and Husserl accepts this absolute beginning. Uh, it is Latin. I think we should translate it. Who is willing to translate? Nobody is willing to translate? Please, go. Give us the translation. I think, therefore, I am. This is the canonical translation. Uh, but, you know, professor uh, must uh, always, well, cast some doubt on the received uh, tradition. And since we are speaking of Descartes, the philosopher of the universal doubt, of the methodic doubt, we will cast a doubt also on this translation. I think, therefore, I am. Well, if I did not exist, I could not think. And the certainty of my being, then, seems to be a consequence of the fact that I think. But on second thoughts, uh, this translation uh, does not seem to be good. Why? We have started with the universal doubt. We doubt all what is. And all what is is not the objects, but is also uh, the uh, cognitions that we presume that we have. Now, when I say I think, therefore I am, I am making a judgment that implies uh, uh, a logical relation between thought and being. And this implies logical laws that I have not yet justified. I am doubt doubting everything, then I doubt also the laws of logic. I cannot make a deduction. Uh, uh, the, the certainty of my being cannot, cannot be the result 
of a logical process because I am doubting exactly, exactly also all logical laws and all logical processes. Then I cannot say, I think, therefore, I am. It is a good translation. Eh? I am not criticizing uh, the knowledge of Latin of our friend who made the translation. It is the canonical translation. Wherever you go, you find this translation. But uh, philosophically, it does not seem to be a good translation. A second translation might be, I think, I am. Um, grammatically, this is less correct uh, because the ergo, cogito ergo sum, ergo, therefore, uh, goes lost. You do not translate it. On the other hand, this translation seems to be to do more justice to the peculiar and unique experience of the cogito. It is not a deduction from thought to being, since I think I, I am. This implies that you already know that only existing beings can think, but you are doubting all. Therefore, you are doubting also this logical connection. Uh, rather, in the same act of consciousness and with the same absolute evidence, we become aware of the fact that we think and of the fact that we are. Thought and being are given in the same act of consciousness and with the same immediacy. Keep this distinction in mind. We will see later, uh, shortly, um, that, this, that the difference between the first and the second formulation is important. In the second formulation, we have a direct presence of uh, being in consciousness. In the first case, uh, this, uh, in the first case, being is present in consciousness only as thought, as a content of thought. Uh, whilst in the first, in the second case, it is present as real being. Being gives itself to be known in human consciousness. Um, now. If we want to continue in the analysis of the cogito ergo sum, I must draw your attention on the ego, on the I. I think I am. What is the meaning of I? The I is a necessary presupposition of thought. If I did not exist, I could not think. I am the subject of thought, and the idea of the I accompanies all other ideas that are present in me. Whenever I think something, I think that something, and I think myself as accompanying the thought of that something. That is my thought. So I am present in all thoughts that I have, and uh, the I uh, uh, is uh, the subject that accompanies all my thoughts. And this is the logical function of the I. This function is purely formal. What is the meaning of, of the fact that the, the I is merely formal? I don't know anything about myself. The I is a logical condition of the expression of any possible thought. It's the formal condition of the existence of thought. But this I that is given in consciousness uh, does not contain in itself any information on my real being. It is a transcendental I. It is me, it could be you, it could be he, it could be she. Uh, I have no elements to see in the I anything but the formal propositional function of the I. Um, however, if we however accept the idea that the I is really given in consciousness, the second translation of the cogito, I think I am, and I am given in consciousness, uh, then this is what is given is not only a formal presupposition of thought, but also a real content of thought. I think I am I. I that is Rocco, I that is John, I that is uh, 
Mary, a concrete eye. The eye is given then in consciousness not only as a subject, but also as an, obje as an object. I, the I, I am a subject, but I am, I am also an object. And in the second reading of the Cogito, the I is given also as an object. The I, as object, is a real content of consciousness, and as such can be analyzed. In the I, a true I, a whole world is given. All what we know and all, and all what we make experience of is present in the eye as a content of the eye. If the eye is an object, uh, what is given is, well, me, but with me, all the uh, knowledge of the world that I carry in me. Uh, the world of knowledge is contained in the eye as subject, subject but also as object of knowledge. These are the phenomena that inspired the phenomenological philosophy of Edmund Husserl. He wanted to go back to things in themselves, and it seems that the things in themselves of Husserlian phenomenology are the phenomena as they are immediately given in consciousness, that is, as content of the eye. All what is contained in the eye. Now, if we do this, we make an important step forward uh, in relation to uh, a purely neo-Kantian philosophy in which the transcendental ego is just the support of the cognitive faculty of man. Uh, and the phenomenology is developed, at least in part, in a neo-Kantian environment, in part, because there is also a purely uh, pre-phenomenological tradition that has, in the end, Aristotelian roots. You may have studied Brentano, Bolzano, uh, all this uh, uh, typically Austrian philosophy, the, the authors that are typical of the Austrian philosophy and that make the difference between German philosophy and Austrian philosophy. Can we, however, say that in this way we have reached the things as they are in themselves? We have reached the phenomena as they give themselves in consciousness. But did we reach the things, the real things? On this point, Husserl, in his logical investigations, is not entirely clear. Some, perhaps most, of his students, when he taught in Göttingen, he was professor in Göttingen, uh, and his students there were convinced that the things in themselves contained in the phenomenological motto, back to things themselves, were the things of the real world. You know, in phenomenology, knowledge is the result of an intentional movement of the attention, of men towards the reality. The intentional movement reaches things as they are. It seems, however, that for the later Husserl, through the phenomenological turn, we have reached things as they are in consciousness, as they are for us, rather, for me, not things as they are for themselves. When Husserl moved from Göttingen uh, to Freiburg, uh, he made more and more evident that he did not want to break with the transcendental environment of uh, modern philosophy. I reached things as phenomena, things in themselves as they are uh, in themselves, that is, the phenomena as they are, but the phenomena are in my consciousness. For us, rather for me. Why for me and not, and not for us? Because in this perspective, it is difficult to speak of a we or of a us. If uh, I know the world only as a content of my consciousness, the only consciousness that I know is my consciousness. And all what is beyond the limits of my consciousness remains unknown. 
And the other man, also the other man is given to me only as an intentional content of my consciousness. An intentional content is the result of my intentional act that puts together the elements of reality, uh, giving them, uh, 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 making of them a meaningful, in, uh, a meaningful, uh, meaningful content. What stands beyond this intentional content remains unknown, as much as the noumenon of Kant. With the turn in Freiburg, in one sense, Husserl um, uh, enters again in the mainstream of uh, the German philosophy of his time, of neo-Kantian philosophy. I am isolated in my cognitive prism, and I cannot know if the image of the other that I perceive in myself as a real existence beyond the limits of my consciousness. Husserl uh, does not doubt in the least that I am seeing you and uh, that I have a knowledge of you as content of my consciousness. But does this content of my consciousness correspond to what you really are? By the way, do you really exist beyond the limits of my consciousness? This must be bracketed. Husserl will never say no but we never say, yes, this is beyond the limits of what I may know. Here, transcendental phenomenology encounters the same limit and the same objection as all forms of idealistic philosophy. It is the objection of solipsism. Solipsism means that uh, solus ipse, it is Latin, only your, uh, I myself am sure I am the object of a sure knowledge. All others remain beyond the limits of, uh, of knowledge. The subject cannot reach beyond the borders of his own self. We can describe all the richness of the contents of consciousness, but we will never be able to trespass the limits of consciousness. And this is uh, to be self-evident. How can I know? Uh, beyond the limits of my uh, faculty of knowledge. What, what lays beyond these limits, I cannot know. It is as if we could not see clearly whether we are leading a real life or are just immersed in an interactive game in which all contents are projected in front of us by a kind of interior TV. There was a movie that uh, had a uh, represented a similar situation, but I don't remember now the title. My daughter would. Um, Husserl wanted to trespass the limits of mere psychologism, that is, the perception of psychological data. Sense experience is reflected in the human psyche, but in the realm of our inner experience, some data present themselves as real and others don't. So there is reality, but is the reality as constructed within the transcendental uh, perception of, of, of the subject. Although some data present themselves as real, they remain, however, one step removed from the real object. Are the data that present themselves as real constituted by our conscious as real? Or do they possess a kind of autonomous existence? Among all the data that we have, do we construct some data as real and other data as dream, for instance? Or do they have an existence beyond that limit? Let us make one example. Let us take the proposition 2 plus 2 makes 4. This is clearly different from a dream in which we see a winged donkey a donkey with, uh, uh, who, who can fly with wings. Uh, the basis of this reality, however, is interior to the subject. I have in myself the a priori knowledge of the fact that 2 plus 2 makes 4, whilst I do not have the a priori knowledge of the fact that a, a winged donkey exists. Um, mathematical propositions are true, real, but would be true even if we were the only thinking subject and the only existing being. They would remain true. But uh, they do not reach beyond the limits 
of my being. They help me to construct uh, other, uh, other, other data, other phenomena, but they uh, remain within the borders of subjectivity. Here, we are beyond the limits of psychologism, but only within the borders of the subject. We have a non-psychologistic knowledge of the subject. One of the main opponents of Husserl was uh, Theodor Lips, and he had a, a, a philosophy based on psychology, uh, and a reduced knowledge to psychological perception and construction. Now, we have something that is not psychological, but nevertheless is not yet real in the same sense in which we use the word real in our everyday speech. We can, we can make a further step towards reality and say that the world of phenomena presents itself to us in a way that seems to presuppose the existence of, of a plurality of subjects. I am not the only subject. In um, organizing the world of my knowledge, I construct you as a subject. The world of phenomena is an anti-subjective world. It is enough to say that we have reached the limits of the subject and that we have trespassed the limits of the subject and have reached the real thing, the thing in itself. Again, it does not seem so. These subjects that we find and described and who sometimes may look like really existing men are nevertheless constituted by us or rather by the only subject whose existence is really given, that is myself or oneself. Hamlet may seem to be more real, in one sense, than most people we meet in our everyday life. He is, however, a fictional character constituted by a human subject, the author. He is not a real human being, and in knowing Hamlet, we do not transcend the limits of our, uh, of our subjectivity. How can we know that we are not constituting all the persons that we know as a, a Shakespeare has constituted uh, Hamlet. By the way, there is a great Polish philosopher who was also a friend of Karl Wojtyla, a Roman in Garden, who have studied at length exactly this problem. Can we go any further? Can we reach the real existing object beyond the limits of the subject? Does such a real object exist? Transcendental phenomenology and the realist phenomenology differentiate themselves according to the answers that each one gives to these questions. Now, up to this point, we have considered the possibility for the subject to transcend its limit and to reach reality beyond this limit. We have considered that if it is possible uh, that the things in themselves phenomenology reaches are not just phenomena as they give themselves in consciousness, but really existing things. Can an intentional act trespass the limits of consciousness? Up to now, it seems it cannot. Now we enter into a different path. This is the path of Einstein, the path of empathy. What is empathy? The first one who spoke of empathy was Husserl himself. In the ideas for a pure phenomenology and phenomenological philosophy, Husserl says that the intersubjective world is the correlate of this intersubjective experience, that is, of experience mediated by empathy. What is exactly this intersubjective experience? And as a consequence, what is the proper meaning of empathy? In ideas, uh, we do not find a clear answer to this question. And Husserl uh, did not have a real answer. A, a clear answer to these questions. And this is the, the reason why, uh, when a, a young uh, woman, a student, who was only 22 years old, a certain Edith Stein, when she went to him uh, and she asked for a thesis, she said, well, fine, good idea. Why don't you write a, a thesis on empathy and try to make some research to see better? What is this empathy that allows us to see the world as constituted by a plurality of subjects. It was only a few months after her arrival to Göttingen from Breslau. Uh, and Edith Stein then 
uh, had attended the summer seminar of Husserl in Göttingen in 1913. Uh, by the way, um, uh, as a professor, uh, uh, I am, uh, well, she took four years to make the thesis. But it's wor it was worth the while. It is a thesis that remained in the history of philosophy. So uh, when you make your thesis, um, don't worry. It may take time. But if it is well done, it is worth the while. Now, and the topic was uh, uh, empathy. Uh, Husserl moved from Göttingen to Fribourg in Breisgau, and at his time followed him. Uh, he had been uh, called to a chair of philosophy in the Albert Ludwigs University in in Freiburg. And the title of the thesis is On the Problem of Empathy. The original title was Das Einführungsproblem in seiner Geschichtlichen Entwicklung und in Phenomenologischer Betrachtung. That is, the problem of empathy in its uh, historical development. Historical development means in a polemics against uh, Lips, who had already uh, introduced the empathy, but in a merely psychological sense and uh, in a phenomenological consideration. And uh, it was presented in Freiburg in 1917. It took four years. Das Einführungsproblem. Einführung has been translated into English with the rather unusual word empathy. I don't think you have met this empathy very often out of uh, the work of Einstein and out of phenomenology. Empathy is a word that comes from the Greek and is a rather literal translation of Einführung. Empathy. M corresponds to, uh, the the, to the German Ein, Einführung, Empathy. And Ein in English means in. It indicates the act of entering or the fact of being in a given space. I am in. You are out, I am in. I am. Fuelen corresponds to the English to feel and to the Greek patein. M patein, ein fuelen. Ein fuelung, empathy. Uh, the Greek word empathy, it is Greek. It is English, but it is Greek. The Greek word empathy has, however, a shadow of meaning that differentiates it from the German Fuhlen. In this case, the translation, as a rule, the translation is never as good as the original. But we are in a very rare case in which the translation is better than the original. Um, the reason is uh, that uh, the Greek word patein has a shadow of meaning that differentiates it from the German Fuhlen. It implies that I feel as a consequence of an action. Fuhlen is general, like to feel in English. Patein contains the shadow of meaning that what I feel is the result of an action that has an impact upon me. And this action is not my action. That is, I am not the, the active subject of the action. I am rather the passive subject of the, action, of the action, or rather the object of the action. The pattern is something that is done to me or happens in me. Then the English translation reveals something on the nature of empathy that is not contained in the original German. Uh, and this uh, makes more apparent that we are entering in, into a new domain of research. There is a transitio in allud genos, that is, uh, we are trespassing the border toward another dimension of, philo of philosophical activity. We do not move from the subject following the intentional act until it reaches, or more likely, does not reach. Uh, the real object beyond the limits of consciousness. It seems that consciousness cannot be transcended by intentional act. But what happens in the case of empathy is something different. Empathy 
is the presence of the other as other in us. Now, it is the object that enters in us. It is not we that we move towards the object and in the end reach the object and become, uh, in one sense, the master of the object. We do not reach the other through our protention towards the reality that exists outside of our consciousness. But on, on the contrary, we perceive in us the presence of another who has penetrated into our consciousness. And this implies a certain passivity of the subject. Uh, by the way, passive uh, in Greek is patein, the same verb from which the word empathy is derived. And here we come very near to Aristoteles and to St. Thomas Aquinas. For them, knowledge is first of all uh, the passive uh, fact, not the act, the passive fact that something enters into me and I become conscious of what has entered into my sphere of consciousness. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the position of Husserl is in one sense turned upside down. How is it possible that another one may be present in me? In empathy, the, in, the intentional act discovers a knowledge material in the subject that is clearly not originated in the subject. We might say, but now I am not using the language of Edith Stein, at least not the, the language of Edith Stein 1917. Perhaps Edith Stein would have recognized the, the, the appropriateness of this language, but only several years later. Um, uh, we discover a form in ourselves. In phenomenology, the sense data are recognized, but they do not have a form. They are constructed by the subject through the intentional uh, act. Uh, and now, uh, uh, the, the, the problem is not that I find in myself sense data, but these this sense data are resistant to my attempt to construct them because they have already a form of their own. Um, and this is uh, the point in which uh, uh, the traditional position of modern philosophy is transcended. At its time, distinguishes sharply between empathy in that and other states of affairs that may be similar or analogous to empathy, but are not empathy. I don't know whether it was completely clear to her when she did this, but it seems uh, that she makes these distinctions just in order to distinguish the perception of the other as other in me from perceptions that might be the result of my organizing sense materials that come from the outside. Uh, to feel the living experience of the other is different from knowing about the interior feelings of the other. In this case, we know, but we do not feel I may know what you are feeling without feeling myself what you are feeling. And this is the result of my general knowledge that I have of you and of the circumstances in which you live. But I am not living the experience of you as an other being in me. You are where you are, I am here, and I understand what is going through your mind. In the other case, there is another case, the case of unipathy. Mitfühlen in German, to feel together. The same sentiment is experienced by a plurality of persons at the same time. Each one of them remains clearly the only subject of her feeling. Let us make an example. Uh, what is the basketball team of Pittsburgh? You don't know? Too bad. I can't believe that. Well, let us imagine that the, the, the baseball team of Pittsburgh uh, wins the World Series. Then we can imagine that all the supporters of this team will feel the same sentiments of profound satisf satisfaction and great enthusiasm. The cause of these sentiments in me will not, however, be the same sentiment, the similar sentiment present in another fan of the same team. Uh, the cause will be the victory of my team, 
that causes analogous feelings in the soul of a plurality of subjects. I would be equally happy for the victory of my team, even if I were completely alone. Copathy comes nearer to empathy. Here, the cause of my joy is the joy of the other. I am happy because you are happy. There is a causal relationship between the state of mind of the other and my own state of mind. I am happy because you are happy. But my happiness is not your happiness. I do not feel in me your feeling. I am happy. My feeling is caused by your feeling, but it's not the same feeling. If I were not your friend, but your enemy, I could as well as be happy because you are unhappy. There would be a causal relation, uh, but the sentiment would not be the same. Your suffering could be the cause of my joy. In any case, I do not feel your sentiment. Drawing nearer to empathy, we find the imitation of the other. We see another human being rejoicing, and we imitate his joy. The imitation causes in me a similar experience, but this is not empathy. You are laughing, I find this uh, <coughs> exhilarating, and I start laughing myself. But I am not laughing uh, because of your sentiment. I am laughing because you are laughing. Uh, similar to imitation is the association. I see the other performing a certain action, for instance, laughing. And I remember that I myself have performed the same action. And I feel again the same sentiment I felt on that occasion. So I know the category of the sentiment you are experiencing, but I am not experiencing your sentiment. I suppose that the other now experiences the same feelings I experienced in that similar occasion. I know about the feeling of the other, but I do not feel what the other feels. There is also the inference through analogy. In this case, I know that as a rule, certainly bodily expressions and also some verbal expressions correspond to certain states of mind. When I see those bodily expressions or hear those verbal expressions, I suppose the presence of the corresponding feelings. From the inference through analogy, there is an important field of, pheno of phenomenological research that at its time has made possible but has not developed. It is the study of the language of the body. I uh, understand uh, your feelings uh, because I know the certain bodily movements correspond to certain uh, human feelings. Uh, maybe this is so also uh, to a certain extent because uh, uh, these uh, bodily movements correspond to acts that are imitated but not really performed. If I look something like this, uh, it is threatening and you imagine since it is the imitation of the act of punching somebody, that I am angry and I am willing to enter into a strife. So you understand the language of my body. Modern linguistics uh, were developed on the basis of the strong distinction made by uh, this author between the significant and the signified. Uh, the significant is uh, the, the sign and uh, the signified is the object that is meant to the sign. If I show you a, a painting of an apple, the painting is the significant, the apple is the signified. According to this Saussure in language, the relation between uh, significant and signified is arbitrary. There is no relation of, non-necessary, non, non, non natural relation obtaining between the word apple and the apple. Uh, in the case of the language of the body, that is in inference through analogy, the relation between significant and signified is not arbitrary but necessary. Uh, and you see this because you understand the language of the body of another human being whose language you do not speak. Since uh, the, the relation between significant and signified is arbitrary, then uh, we may have different uh, systems uh, connecting uh, uh, significant and signified, and they make different languages. 
But the language of the body is not arbitrary. Um, Carlo Wotiwa will draw important consequences from this fact. Edistein, however, opens the path leading to the language of the body, but does not tread herself that path. She's concentrated on the issue of empathy, and we also will go back to empathy ourselves. We have seen what empathy is not, but we have not come to a definition of empathy, although we have, by way of approximation, drawn nearer to empathy. The reason of this difficulty in giving a definition of empathy lies perhaps in the fact that empathy is a primary quality. Primary qualities cannot be defined, but must be the object of an act of direct intuition. May I explain to you what is white? Have you ever tried to give a definition of white? It's very difficult. Uh, you understand what is white because you have an act of direct intuition. And I can show you, if you don't speak English, uh, and I want to show you how you say white in English, uh, how you say white in English, I show you uh, a, a white blank on paper and say white. I show you, but I do not give you a definition. How could I? Um, it is like when a diapason causes another diapason to resound. Empathy is a kind of interior resonance through which the experience of the other makes itself present in me, or rather, the other becomes present in me. Uh, by the way, in uh, modern neurosciences, uh, Professor Rizzolatti has uh, led a research showing that some uh, neurons, the so-called mirror neurons, enter in this kind of resonance in the brain of a man uh, watching another man. It is not exactly what Edistein means, but there's a certain relationship to it. But we will not deal on this today. I shall rather, in order to bring you nearer to seeing this, what I mean, what Edistein means, I shall read you a lyric that stands at the beginning of German poetry. It is very beautiful. It is the first one of German poetry. It was thought to be a, a poem of Walter von der Vogelweide, but it seems to be one century before Walter. Uh, you are mine. I am yours. It is a love poem. You are mine. I am yours. This you must never doubt. You are closed in my heart. The key went lost. You will stay there forever. It is the experience of having the other present in myself. The other is in myself. As other, not as an object that I have constructed, but the other as other is present in myself. The word I'm feeling, to have a feeling of, clearly and closely resembles the word I'm seeing, to have an intuition of. It seems here that feeling is a cognitive potential. Through feeling, we become receptive to the presence of the other. The other enters into us. Um, the strongest example of empathy is love. Not by chance the poem is a love poem. By the way, did I say that it was the first poem of German literature? Yes, I did, but I was wrong. Uh, really, it is a translation from the Bible. Um, this experience of passivity, a translation that stands in the beginning of German love poetry, of course, um, this experience of passivity receptivity seems to be easier for women than for men. Perhaps this may be a consequence of the fact that women have, at least potentially, the experience of pregnancy, and pregnancy is a very strange experience. Another, that we cannot have, only women can, another human being is bodily present in, uh, in you. Uh, 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 this is exactly what happens spiritually in the phenomenon of empathy. Uh, in, uh, in, in empathy, uh, uh, we feel uh, the other because the other lives in us. And this experience of being able to feel the other in us characterizes the person, is constitutive of personhood. 
Carol Wojtyła said once that uh, to love means to carry another human being in your heart to generate him into eternal life, into true life. Uh, a person is a, a, a being that has this potentiality to carry in the heart another human being. Um, when I taught with Professor Crosby in Liechtenstein, I used it to make to the students this example. <coughs> Imagine that now, in this moment, a very uh, attractive lady, very pretty, enters in this room. What will the reaction of all the males who are present? This. They will move their head and watch her. <laughs> then, to this first reaction, a second uh, reaction uh, uh, comes. Uh, and uh, m those who are either married or in love in any way will make this. <laughs> Why? Because the beloved person is in me. And, she, and I feel that she is in me. And I, and I already can hear. Uh, what she would say. <laughs> and then, those who are not engaged in any way will continue to watch, uh, perhaps we we'll try to uh, exchange a few words and see what happens. Um, now, I hope uh, that I succeeded in giving you an, uh, an inroad into the idea of empathy. And we will try to draw some consequences from this discovery of Edith Stein. Uh, there are many lines of research that may continue uh, this discourse on empathy. Um, one goes directly to the idea of theology and goes to the idea of communion. Uh, if uh, the other may be present in me, also that other, that is God, may be present in me. And uh, the presence of the others the human others in me, has a certain relation to, the, to one another and to the presence of a God among us. The communion is exactly the presence in, of one in the soul of the other. And it may refer to the inner life of the Trinity. In the Trinity, you have three persons who live one in the other. And it may refer also to the presence of, the, of God in the soul of man or to the presence of uh, of one in the life of the other that constitutes the human community, uh, the church, and may refer to the spousal love that constitutes the sacrament of marriage. We will not pursue now this path, because this is a philosophical, not a theological paper, but I imagine that you already have an idea of how many, uh, how significant this can be for uh, theology, for different aspects of theology. And if you look at the, the further development of Edith Stein, you see that she has seen many of these consequences and uh, there is a, a, well, conversion is always a miracle of God, but there is also a philosophical um, path that led her towards her conversion. Another line of research uh, leads us to a re-evaluation of the history of philosophy and also some fundamental problems of phenomenology and of modern philosophy. We could start here with the interpretation of Descartes and of the cogito. In the first part of his uh, discourse on, on the method, Descartes gives us also a short autobiography. What is appalling in the autobiography of Descartes is the absence of women. He does not seem to have had a mother. He had one, uh, but uh, he, she died when he was very young. He had no sisters, no wives or mistresses, no daughters. Well, as a matter of fact, he had one daughter, and he loved her dearly. But the feminine does not seem to have any role in his philosophy. It's completely lacking. The cogito seems to correspond to a man who was not born of a mother, was never in love, was never a father. Um, a man in love can doubt more easily his own being as, as the being of the beloved person. We are, since the beginning of our lives, in relation to others, and without this relation we could not exist. 
at least in the relation to the mother. There is no man who was not born of a mother. Edgestein gives us the evidence of the existence of the other. The certainty of the, of, the, of the existence of the other is given with the certainty of the existence of the ego. This grounds, in general, the existence of real being. The other, whom I directly experience in myself, is a real being. And this is enough to affirm the existence of real being in general. So you uh, recover the idea of being um, beginning with uh, the, the starting point of Descartes, but transpassing the borders, the limits of this standpoint. Um, this brings Edgestein also near, methodologically, to another great philosopher who stands at the beginning of, uh, uh, of modernity, um, uh, he is Giovan Battista Vico. Giovan Battista Vico had a similar intuition of the original intersubjectivity of man. Since the beginning, we are in relation to others. Perhaps yet this, because he was he had a mother, he was married, and he had several children. And uh, when you read his autobiography, you see how much this has been. Uh, a, a fundamental element of his life experience. <coughs> On the other hand, Husserl explains that the world is given to us as inhabited by a plurality of subjects. But if these subjects are real subjects, then also the world supported by intersubjectivity is a real world. We can distinguish between interior and exterior experience through the relation to another man. We determine the objective through the intersubjective dialogue. If the subjects participating in the dialogue are real, then the world we discover through this dialogue is also real. We have here a decisive, decisive breakthrough towards realism. <coughs> this breakthrough allows us to rediscover from within the modern attitude, from within the cogito, some fundamental aspects of classical philosophy. The first one of them, we already have mentioned this, is a certain passivity of knowledge. There is in knowledge a movement from the subject towards the object, but there is also a movement from the object towards the subject. Edistein brings to evidence through her research on empathy this passivity of knowledge in the case of the presence of the other man in us. Oh, there are also some hints at the possibility of a limited degree of empathy with animals. Um, the road is, is, however, open for further research on the, on the receptive side of knowledge and on the presence of the object as object in the subject. And here we come very close to St. Thomas Aquinas and to Aristotle. Within the time constraints of this lecture, we cannot further pursue this direction of research. But if anybody of you will uh, write something on Edistein, he will see that step by step uh, Edistein has, has gone in this direction, arriving to a, a form of, uh, of realism. We prefer now to turn our attention again to Husserl. How did Husserl react to the work of this uh, so gifted student? In the beginning he was very happy and included much of the results in Ideen II, that is his, uh, uh, another of his books. But he does not seem to be aware in the beginning of these broad implications. We can, however, suppose that this work of Edith Stein and the dialogue with Edith Stein had a role in the further development and in the partial revision of Husserl's of Husser phenomenology. In 1929, Husserl delivers four lectures in Paris that were later published under the title Cartesian Meditations. Husserl maintained his choice to understand the cogito in a transcendental sense and therefore not as the basis of an ontology. The whole content of the cogito is the transcendental ego. In the fifth meditation, however, Husserl considers the problem of the existence of the ego of the other, and writes, the transcendental ego 
grasps himself in his proper original being as well as himself in the exterior experience of the other and grasps therefore the other transcendental egos. This seems a bit of realism, a plurality of transcendental egos. Um, it is not, uh, in one sense, uh, it is an act of blasphemy because uh, within uh, the, uh, the, the rigid definition of what a transcendental ego is, it is very difficult to imagine that there may be more than one transcendental ego. But in any case, it is uh, here a reference to a, a real plurality of transcendental egos. However, they seem to communicate with one another not through a real world that is common to all of them, but through a transcendental intermonadic consciousness. It is not clear to me what uh, the intermonadic consciousness really is, so don't ask me to explain you what it is. Um, uh, I doubt that this was not very clear to Husserl himself, but this might be also the, the subject of a research. What is the transcendental intermonadic consciousness? His process of thought seems to be similar to that that leads Descartes from the self-apprehension of the ego to the ontological argument for the existence of God. Uh, this God and this transcendental intermonadic consciousness seems to be something similar to uh, a, a kind of God's consciousness in which all other consciousnesses are contained. This God is, however, only the transcendental support of the world of knowledge. Does not seem to be a person, if it is God that is meant, and comes very near to the philosopher's God criticized by Pascal or to the pantheist God of Spinoza. A second and more thoroughgoing consideration of these issues and of the whole structure of phenomenology arrives later with the crisis of the European sciences. This book sheds a new light on the all of the thought of Husserl. All phenomenology can be seen as an attempt to give us a rigorous methodology of philosophy as science, as hard science, strangled essentialist. Philosophy must be, must be recast in a method similar to that of natural sciences. The empirical materials resulting from sense experience must be constructed according to a priori categories, and only in this way they become object of scientific knowledge. This implies that the data we receive from our senses do not possess a form of their own. They receive their form from the intellect insofar as they are shaped by the intellect through the intentional act. The world of knowledge is therefore identified with the word of scientific knowledge, using the word scientific in the sense of the nature of sciences. In crisis, Husserl turns his attention to a life world in which man is involved before he turns his attention to the task of constructing a scientific approach to reality. What is this life world? In one sense, it is uh, the same world of opinion and prejudice that has been put within brackets uh, uh, at the beginning of phenomenology in order to uh, make the process of phenomenological scientific construction possible. The world, the everyday world, uh, in which I cannot establish clear essential laws must be put within brackets in order to allow me to uh, uh, formulate essential laws uh, and uh, to construct uh, the phenomena. Um, the pre-scientific pre world uh, is for science an infinite source of errors. And this is the reason why we put it within brackets. The reduction of the world of experience allows us to work with pure sense data that receive meaning through the scientific construction of the transcendental subjectivity. Now, in crisis, the life world is considered from a completely different perspective. It is a practical perspective. When we are not content with describing the world, but we must situate ourselves in the world and make the cheesiest, then the pure scientific description is not enough. The world we have constructed through phenomenology 
uh, is uh, the world of science. But science does not tell us what we have to desire, what is the adequate object for the demands of our heart. Um, also, the interaction of sense data and transcendental ego is not enough. We must introduce necessarily the elements of human finality and of value. Uh, I evaluate phenomena and attribute them meanings determined to their relation to my interior experience and feeling. The non-transcendental subject that had been correctly excluded in the approach of transcendental phenomenology in the beginning now must occupy the center of the scene. And in doing this, um, Husserl uh, comes to grips with something that is not foreign to phenomenology. If you look at, at Max Scheler, in Max Scheler, this element of value uh, uh, has been made the object of a phenomenological analysis similar and different from that of Husserl. The life world enters not just as an obstacle to objective knowledge, but also as a general background of cultural convictions and traditions that determine human preferences and actions. This means that the sphere of culture and history enters into phenomenology and demands to be interpreted. The role of objective, of, of objective knowledge, of reason and of science in our society does not appear anymore as something in itself evident that does not stand in need of being explained and justified. We can imagine that this turn in Husserl is not only irrelated to the spread in Germany and in Europe of irrationalistic movements and trends. These are the years of Adolf Hitler and of National Socialism. Um, whence comes the role that objective knowledge and science have conquered in Europe and the particular role they have in this society. Because now this role is threatened. How can we justify and defend this role against an anti-scientific attitude that does not want to have uh, scientific knowledge and uh, is born within the life world? How can we, from within the life world, justify the role of objective reason? Because also objective reason, the love to objective reason, is born within the life world. It's not something uh, that is given in and by itself. Now, the, the ideal of rigorous science stands in need of being justified. And it must be justified in the life world and must be happy to re-emerge from the life world. We can then move to a third consideration of the life world. The first consideration was purely negative. And so it only as an obstacle we had to get rid of in order to reach true knowledge. The second consideration is more balanced. Now we recognize that the life world is irreducible to transcendent knowledge and foundational in relation to the objectifying attitude that gives birth to the world of transcendental knowledge. There is a third consideration. But now we go, at least in part, beyond the argument of Husserl. And regards the fact that the life world has a demands a modality of exercise of reason that is its own. The method that is adequate for the natural sciences is not adequate for the knowledge of the life world, for the knowledge of the human world. Shall we say that the rules of the other method are no more phenomenological, the question remains open. If you follow uh, uh, Scheler, if we follow von Hildebrand, uh, if we follow Edith Stein, uh, we will say no. Uh, these contents can be the object of phenomenological insight, but this insight must enter into a different realm, the realm of value and feeling. And feeling. We do not know only sense data and the transcendental ego. There is also the world of the real existing egos with their feelings and value perception. Uh, we are arriving very near to uh, Josef Ratzinger. Uh, in his book with Habermas, he explains very clearly there is uh, a rational construction of the world 
the method of natural sciences that may made, be made rigorous through transcendental phenomenology. And there is the real life world. And here we need something that is not irrational, uh, but uh, obeys to a different kind of reason. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, in uh, um, his book De Trinitate, on the Trinity, in uh, book 15, chapter 12, tells us that there are two modalities of the exercise of human reason. One modality is the scientia, science. Uh, in this modality, we uh, try to understand the relations among objects and to construct the relations among objects in order to be able to dominate the environment. But the other modality is sapientia. In sapientia, we try to understand uh, what is good for us, what is the end of the action, what is the proper object for our longing of love. And uh, I think that um, many times we have the beginning of a movement that leads also uh, Husserl progressively towards the discovery of this other dimension of human reason. I think that perhaps he has thought of his old student when he was developing the considerations that are the soul of uh, the crisis of the European sciences. Uh, here, I think that uh, I have bored you enough. I am glad to see that nobody has fallen asleep, but if I go further, it might easily happen. Thank you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville, faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.